It was awful. They found her in the bathtub, a kitchen knife lying in a pool of blood on the tile next to her. Aaron said he had never seen anything so bloody in real life or fiction. It was everywhere, on the floor, on the shower curtain, sprayed on the wall in front of her. The water was completely red. Apparently, after she had done it, she fell backwards and smacked her head on the wall, leaving that bloody too. Can you even imagine? Walking in the bathroom to find your wife like that? He said the door wasn't even locked. He went in in the morning after he woke up to pee and brushed his teeth, and there she was. Eyes wide open, one hand still gripped on the soap dish. The cops were almost impressed. It takes an awful lot of resolve to be able to cut your own throat like that with a kitchen knife. Most people couldn't exert the force, much less finish the job without passing out halfway through. And yet there she was, a gash that extended ear to ear. Cops said there was no evidence that another person had been in the bathroom, but three other people lived there, so there had to be something. It, it just doesn't make sense. The cops asked me if she was unhappy or depressed, and you know, I really wanted to be able to tell them, oh yes, she had a history of depression, that makes perfect sense. I wish we could have gotten her help, but I couldn't. The truth is, she was a happy, satisfied person most of the time, and her life was deeply rooted in her faith. She would never have taken a life, not even her own. It was against everything she believed in. There was sort of a, a note she had written, Love and grief are full of power and empty of reason on the wall in Sharpie. The court psychologist said he suspected that she held on to an immense amount of guilt over losing her stepdaughter to SIDS. She found her cold in the crib one morning. I, I had no idea she was holding on to that. It wasn't her fault, just an unspeakable tragedy. Life isn't fair, you know. I just find it so hard to believe that she would put her family through another senseless tragedy. As a result, it doesn't add up. I just, I just can't picture her doing that. Well, maybe she didn't. Rewind. Setting. A spotless tile bathroom with stately clawfoot tub is lit dimly by the warm glow of candles. The air is heavy with steam rising off the surface of the water of the tub. The water is hot enough to raise the color on your face, but it is nevertheless inviting. A beautiful woman sits in the warm, fragrant water, trying to release the stress of the day. The rest of the house is asleep, but she hasn't been able to shut her brain down. Cleaning the bathroom thoroughly hadn't helped, so thinking that this might help instead, she figured she'd give it a whirl. Her hair is tucked messily on top of her head, eyes closed, one hand resting on the tub rail, the other on the wall-mounted soap dish. It is quiet except for the occasional drip of leftover water escaping through the tap and into the tub. Her breathing is deep and meditative. The opening of the bathroom door is completely soundless, but the sudden draft of cool, dry air that reaches her collarbone seconds later is enough to cause her pause, eyes still closed, and seek it out with her lungs. It is late and her rational brain tells her that the shower curtain has moved or a cool breeze has made its way through the vents. It never enters her mind that an open door could be the culprit. 
everyone is asleep. A man dressed head to toe in dark fabric garments, wearing heavy gloves and a ski mask, slides into the curtain of steam behind her. In one swift motion, he grabs her by the top knot and slams her head against the back wall, leaving a smear of blood behind. The force of the impact has caused the skin on her scalp to split, freeing a trickle of blood. Stunned, the woman gasps, but has no time to react before the man holding her by the hair has retrieved a knife from his waistband. He holds the stunned woman up by her hair and in one strong motion slashes her throat ear to ear, then lowers her back to a sitting position, closes her hand around the knife, and raises it to the wound to smear the fresh blood onto it. He then drapes her limp arm over the tub rail and lets the knife fall before noiselessly exiting the way he came in. Confident. Did he leave any traces? Is there blood on him somewhere? Did a hair fall? It doesn't matter. He burns his dark clothing in the fireplace and showers in the master bathroom before climbing back into bed and setting an alarm for 6 a.m. as usual. When he wakes, he will find his wife and throw himself on her in grief before the police have the chance to arrive. Who could judge him for such an act? Love and grief are full of power and empty of reason. I'm Holly. I'm Leslie. And we We would be dead. That wasn't scary. I'm glad. I see what you did there. Yeah, that was a twisty one. Yeah. <laughs> hey, Leslie. Hey, Holly. Hey, Fiends. Well, first of all, I want to make it clear to any first-time listeners that my opening was not meant to convey facts or theories in this case. Okay. I know it's kind of similar, mm-hmm. but um, the monologues are only meant to conjure up feelings. Mm-hmm. It's close, but I'm not trying to covertly throw out an extra su- uh, suspect in this case. Okay. And if you haven't read the title or made a very educated guess, today we're covering the much-requested, extremely mysterious death of Rebecca Zahau. Now, I've heard this case covered several different times and felt differently every one of them. Every time I hear it, I I feel like I think something different, you Mm -hmm. know? So I was glad to actually get the opportunity to do my own research this time. And I wish I could say it gave me more answers, but it really didn't. This case reminds me a little of Elisa Lam in its propensity to evoke conspiracy theories, but I think that this go-round, some of them are well-deserved. Hmm. You know what else I think has to be well-deserved, Leslie? Uh, I don't know, Holly. What? It's a little word that we like to use every so often. Hmm. Starts with a V. Sure. Uh, Victorian? Yeah, that's okay. it. <laughs> No, silly, it's validation. Oh, my. Validation. <laughs> of course. so precious and life-affirming. We can all use a little more of it, don't you think? I sure do. So if you like what we're doing, fiends, please head on over to Apple Podcasts to leave us a five-star rating and or a friendly review. It only takes a moment, but it makes all the difference in the world to us. And if you're already listening, like, thank goodness, that's great. Give us a rating <laughs> and a review. <laughs> it only takes a moment, but it makes all the difference in the world to us. 
Ratings and reviews are what can move us forward, and moving forward means more content. So get on over there and five-star away. And if you want a little more We Would Be Dead in your life, you can support us on Patreon. That's right, for a little monthly donation, you'll get access to our extra monthly minisodes, our patrons-only podcast 30-minute horror movies. Uh, If you want to see what that's like, you can check out the episode we did on our main feed for Twilight. It's a real treat. You can also get access to our weekly video after show, Host Mortem, a special gift from us, an on-air toast dedicated just to you, and more. And if all of that is too much for you, you can simply share anything in our social media feed to your social media feed. Tell your friends, tell your neighbors, tell your enemies. Maybe this will be the thing you guys can bond over and finally get along. Nice. Yeah. We're solving Mm. problems. Wouldn't that be nice? Yeah. Then your friends and enemies can become fiends and we can all hang out together. What's a good enemy name? Mm, I was thinking like Clive. Ooh. That is a good one. Yeah. You're so good at naming things. I try. (laughs) I think about it all week. Like, oh, that would have been a better one. (laughs) (laughs) One more big announcement before we move on. If you guys want another chance to see us live and in person, We have a live show slash Halloween costume party at Cape May Brewing Company on October 30th. Yes. Yay, we're so excited. Uh, We're super excited to see anybody who can make it out. Please come in a costume and have a grand old time. We have to tie up more details about that with um, Cape May Brewing Company, but the details are coming very soon, I promise. So everybody stay tuned. And I I think that's all I have for right now. Leslie, do you have anything to add before we begin? Well, I wanted to add that I don't know anything about this story, so I'm very excited to Ooh. hear it. This will be my first <sighs> my first run through. It is um really complicated. Mm-hmm. And the thing that I'm gonna like caveat I'm gonna give on this case is that you can tell the story cleanly or you can tell the story messily because it's a story with a bunch of branches on if the story is a tree, this one has a bunch of branches that just break off. Okay. halfway through. Mm. They don't follow through and tie into anything. They're just kind of there. Okay. So the way I did it, I think we just kind of like touch on all of those at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, so, okay. All right. We'll see how it goes. Great. All right then. On with the show. At 6.45 a.m. on July 13th, 2011, the sun had risen on the historic Spreckles Mansion in Coronado, California, with the promise of another beautiful day in paradise. Hmm. Adam Shackney was an early riser, and so he was up and out by 6.45 looking for a cup of coffee. He was staying at the guest house at the Spreckles Mansion. I want a guest house. Right? I want a house so big that I have a whole extra house for guests. Hmm. Ideal. So Adam figured he could mosey on up to the main house and poke around in the kitchen for something. Adam's brother Jonah owned the sprawling historic estate and was currently using it as a summer home. Oh, very nice. Yeah, that was just one of his homes. God, and that kind of lavish lifestyle um, is beyond most of us, including Adam. (laughs) Adam was the captain of a tugboat in Tennessee. Nice. Mm -hmm. But Jonah was the CEO of, I didn't look up how to pronounce this. It's either Medesis or Medicus Mm. Pharmaceutical a large pharmaceutical company based in Bridgewater, New Jersey, that specializes in products that aid largely in cosmetic dermatology. Oh. Yes. So, and I'm not talking about, like, holistic stuff. I'm talking about, like, Restylane and Juvederm and acne treatments that are, like, you know, medical acne treatments. Right. Big money, right? Mm Mm-hmm. 
Jonah had been staying at his stately summer home with his girlfriend Rebecca and his six-year-old son Max when tragedy struck. That's what had brought Adam into town. You see, two days prior, Jonah's young son, Adam's nephew, Max, had unexpectedly suffered an horrific accident. Little Max was in the ICU, and things were not looking good. Mm. Adam had come into town the day before, had dinner with Rebecca and a friend of hers, and then come back to Spreckles to get some sleep. His brother had not left Max his, Max's bedside. So his brother Jonah and Jonah's, I guess, yes, Jonah's ex-wife, Max's mother, had stayed at the hospital with him the whole time. Like, they didn't leave whatsoever. Mm -hmm. Max was in Rady Children's Hospital, which is just 19 minutes door-to-door from the Spreckles Mansion, but Jonah couldn't stand the thought of missing a critical moment in Max's care, so he spent the night in the Ronald McDonald House, which is, I think, on the same campus Mm -hmm. as the hospital. That would make sense. And I totally get that. Like, if that was my child in very critical condition, I wouldn't wouldn't go home. Exactly. What if there was, like, a split second where you had to make a decision? Right. So that morning, Adam wasn't really sure who he was going to find in the main house or what the state of things were going to be. It had been pretty tense. But he knew it would be best to get an early start. Mm -hmm. As he crossed the dewy grass, something unusual appeared before him. Something was dangling from the second-story balcony. Now, the human brain does not immediately register the most ghastly of all possibilities when it sees an unfamiliar shape, so... I imagine Adam really didn't believe his eyes at first. But as he got closer, a grisly scene came into focus. The dangling object was a human body. Worse still, it was that of Rebecca Zahau, Jonah's girlfriend. She was completely nude. Her wrists and ankles had been elaborately bound with a red rope, and a blue T-shirt had been wrapped around her head and into her mouth to serve as a gag. She was hanging from a length of the same red rope, that seemed to track back into a second-floor bedroom. Adam was in a panic. He had hopes he wasn't too late. Again, the human brain does not immediately register the worst. So anyone who discovered this horrible scene might have thought the same thing. Maybe there's still time. Maybe Mm -hmm. she's not dead. You usually think, like, how can I save her? Even if it's just completely illogical to think that that could happen. So Adam took out his cell phone and immediately called 911. While on the phone with emergency services, Adam ran to the kitchen for a knife, then back to the front of the house where the body was dangling. He also has like a weird struggle with the 911 operator. I've listened to this call like a million times. I will link it for everyone to listen to. But they like cannot, he doesn't know the address of the house. They're like, what's your address? He's like, I don't know, because he just flew in and he's just like, Rebecca just drove him there. I guess he just doesn't know his brother's address. His brother's summer home. It's a summer home. Makes sense, too. right? Yeah. It, okay. So yeah. the he's and then probably okay. I've been in this scenario okay. before where I've been in a house and I was just having somebody coming. Mm-hmm. We were at um my aunt's, your mother-in-law's house. Oh, okay. And I couldn't find the address. Like I was like just I felt flustered trying to get the address and like obviously just thinking like oh let me walk outside the door. But if like the numbers aren't right on the door, then you're like, are they out on the mailbox? And like, you feel very flustered That's right exactly away. what happens. And yeah. you can hear it in the 911 call. They're like, what's the address? He says, I don't know. She asks again. He says, I don't know. You came out here yesterday to pick up a little boy. Okay. So he goes, check the records. And then you hear him shuffle around for like a really long time. And mm-hmm. he's clearly out of breath. And at this point in time, he's cutting her body down. Okay. And then he gets back on the phone and they're like, what's your address? First of all, mm. like, I feel like you can trace that call. I feel like you can find him, but whatever. It's 2011. Right. 
isn't that the point too of being on the staying, staying on the phone on the line. so that mm-hmm. they could find you? Yeah, but she asks again, and he's like, "I I don't know." And the way he describes the scene is, "We've got a girl here who hanged herself." Yeah, he doesn't say like my brother's girlfriend or I think there's trouble. He said, "We have a girl who hanged herself." Right, which a lot of people will come back to that later. But, in, um, but that could also just be he's just panic. giving the info Yep, that's the to theme them. of this whole case. Yeah. So then they ask him again, like, what's the address? They're really pressing him. And then you hear him, like, run. So I think mm-hmm. he goes exactly to, what you said, check. to the front of the house mm-hmm. to look for the address. Which wouldn't that be, wouldn't your first move be, I don't know the address. Now that's going to take 911 long, or the ambulance to get here longer. I need to get her down yes. first. So Absolutely. if you could find the address, that'll be great. I'm going to try to make sure she's, maybe she can still be alive. Yeah. Uh, also, like, it's a historic estate. It it's has a huge. title. Yes. You could be like, I'm at the Spreckles Mansion. But, yeah. like, he didn't say that. Again, I cannot judge anyone else's panic. Mm-hmm. So while he's on the phone with 911, he runs to the kitchen, gets a knife, comes back to the front of the house where the body is dangling. Then he takes a like an old broken patio table that's like sitting on the bricks next to it and pushes it over, stands on the table, grabs her, cuts her down, and kind of eases her onto the grass across from where she was hanging. Now, this couldn't have been easy. In fact, he does it quicker than I, I imagine I could have even done it. Rebecca was a little woman. She was, I think, 5'3 and like 100 pounds. Okay. But she's still a fully grown human who was not bearing any of her own weight. Mm-hmm. And so you can hear it in his voice on the 911 call for people who, like, there are doubters that some of these things happen. Mm. But when you listen to the 911 call, I feel like you can hear that. Okay. Emergency services were dispatched, and Adam told the operator that he wasn't sure if she was still alive— But he told her at this point that he had cut her down and that he was going to attempt to perform CPR. And then the call ends. Adam texts his brother to inform him of what happened and is attempting to revive her while emergency services is on their way. So this scene is bizarre, right? And very violent seeming. Right. Like she's naked and tied up. And it's obvious to EMS that, and the police, that Rebecca's like clearly dead. There's no bringing her back. Rigor mortis had already begun to set in in her jaw, and she was cold. Her body had already begun to turn red and darken in places. Like, there's no coming back from that. Mm -hmm. Oh, a side note. When rigor mortis sets in in a person's head and jaw, it can draw back the facial muscles and tighten the jaw to a locked open position. This creates an eerie phenomenon called a rictus grin. Yeah. You've probably seen it in movies when a dead body is discovered and the face is all twisted into that weird open mouth grimace. Mm -hmm. That actually happens sometimes. And it was the inspiration for the movie The Man Who Laughed, which then inspired the Joker's iconic smile. Oh, there you go. little history. Fun fact. Anyway, I hope you all enjoyed my focus disorder rearing its ugly head. (laughs) Back to the story. (laughs) Rebecca and the scene are all observed by medical examiner investigator Dana Gary, who makes the following report. She fills in the box. Like, I've read this whole report, and I'm just kind of summarizing what she says. She fills in the boxes reporting that Rebecca was a 32-year-old Asian surgical technician who died by hanging in the home she shared with her boyfriend at 1043 Ocean Boulevard in Coronado, California. She said she was last seen alive earlier that same day, and by that same day, it is indicated, like, late at night. So that feels like a weird technicality to me. Also, it doesn't align with Jonas with um with Adam's story later on, so I don't know why they put that on the sheet. Okay. 
that's another weird little bugaboo. Mm. Um, and her notes say, quote, the decedent was a 32-year-old divorced Asian female who resided in a home in Coronado with her boyfriend. On 7-13-11, her body was discovered hanging in a courtyard of her home. Due to suspicious circumstances, a homicide investigation was initiated. Medical examiner's jurisdiction invoked, according to the California Government Code 27491, death due to known or suspected homicide. Whoa. So, we have a murder on our hands, right? Mm -hmm. Medical investigator rolls up. Everything looks suspicious. She reports that she thinks this is a murder. Legally. That's okay. all in the paperwork. So, it's not even a suspicion at this point. It's like, that was her, uh, like, her professional opinion, basically. Okay. So the investigator sure does think this is murder. And it's really important that I give you guys all the information piece by piece before laying out what could have happened because the internet loves this case. Mm -hmm. Oh, my God. Every Reddit armchair detective and conspiracy theorist has wild theories as to what happened. And a lot of them are, like, either based on partial truths or they're just straight-up lies. So before we get into, like, what what's the story? What might have happened? Everything I tell you in the facts section of this week's episode, I took directly from police reports, autopsy reports, and interviews from her family. Okay. So these are facts. Great. I just wanted to be sure we made that clear before we kept going. Let's go, shall we? The scene is observed by two separate inspectors who describe it in the same way. I will summarize. The decedent was found hanging by her neck, nude from a second-floor balcony, the cord around her neck was tied into a slip loop securely attached to the foot of the bed. The other end had another slip loop that went around the decedent's neck. So it was on the foot of the bed, out the balcony, and then she was at the other end of it. Okay. The bedroom was small, and the distance from the bed to the balcony was not very great. On the floor in the bedroom were two knives, a large chef's knife, and a smaller steak knife that appeared to have been used to cut the red cord that she used to bind herself and hang herself to the desired length. The floor had a few other items scattered around on it, a few paint brushes, a dog bone, a tube of black paint, and black smud smudges of what was later confirmed to be the same paint that was mm -hmm. in the tube. Um, and there was smudges of this paint also on Rebecca's nude body. On the outside of the bedroom door was painted the phrase, she saved him, can you save her? In sloppy block printing. Hmm. That will never not be mysterious either. I'm not going to explain that. <laughs> I hate that part of this case so much. They discovered that the knives found on the floor were from the home's kitchen, so they were owned by the house, and the cord that she used for all the business was also from the house's garage. So everything is in suite. Nothing came from outside. The only DNA evidence found on the scene re belonged to Rebecca herself. The only blood located inside the bedroom was menstrual blood, again, from Rebecca. And it was found on the handle of the steak knife. Okay. So there are two knives. Mm -hmm. I don't know if they were both had cord on them. Mm -hmm. But she, I, I'm, my guess is that she, she brought one of each to see which would, or not she, whoever brought one of each yeah. to see which one would work better. But they found her menstrual blood on the handle of the steak knife, the smaller of the two. Okay. And then not a trace of another human was found in that room or on the balcony. And they combed it. Not a cell, not a hair, not a, not spit, not anything. The floor of the balcony was also extremely dirty and dusty. It's like outside, you know. Yeah. And there was evidence of that same dirt found on the soles of Rebecca's 
bare feet. The only footprints, aside from one from an inspector, on the dust in the balcony, and this isn't one of those cases where people tramp, like trampled all over everything. Right. They were very careful when mm-hmm. they investigated this. The only footprints were those from Rebecca's bare feet, and they were standing in a V-shape, one that would have been attained by feet that were bound at the ankles. Yeah, okay. And there was no evidence of a struggle. Below the balcony was a wooden table with one broken leg, which would have been the table Adam used to climb up and get her down. The knife Adam had used to cut Rebecca down was laying in the grass where she had been found. So, so far, all of this kind of adds up together, sort of. So now on to her body, what they found on her body. Her wrists and ankles were bound with nautical knots, Mm-hmm. An overhand and clove hitch, not to be exact. And these look kind of like an intricate figure eight, mm-hmm. but apparently they're not super difficult. They just kind of look impressive. Uh, the bindings on her wrists were loose, and one end of the binding rope was still clutched in her hand when they found her. Her feet were bound securely, and they also discovered residue from adhesive tape on her legs. So, looks like one thing was tried, abandoned, and then another was mm-hmm. enacted. That was something that I learned in that complex, like complex suicide oh, thing. We will talk about yeah, that. Yeah, we'll get to that. But um, that just like it aligns up. Yep. Yeah. Around her head and over her hair was a light blue T-shirt that had been wrapped around her head several times. But by the time that she was discovered, it had been pulled down because, as Adam said, he tried to perform CPR. So nobody actually saw the gag in her mouth except for Adam. Mm. The shirt sleeves were allegedly stuffed into her mouth upon arrival, and they did confirm this by finding saliva on the shirt sleeves. Okay. So it had been in her mouth. Her face and eyes contained the kind of burst blood vessels that occur when a person is strangled to death, and there was slight skin slippage over her left eye. The rope had dug into her neck and created a deep trench. But wait, there's more. Mm. It seems this was not a smooth hanging. Rebecca's body is significantly bruised and battered with injuries sustained throughout. She is bruised and bloodied, so that shows that these marks were made before she was dead, because you're not going to bleed after you're dead. Mm -hmm. So while there is no evidence of a struggle at the scene, there appears to be evidence of a struggle on her body. That is all the information gathered from the crime scene. So that's, that's what they got just from looking at where she was. Um, quick question. Sure. So she's hanging off the balcony, mm-hmm. is that part, because you said that was outside, so mm-hmm. is that outside, like, as if you were to walk in and see her, or is it, like, in the back? Where Where is that in? It's the front of the house. The front of the house. So, like, okay. when you walked up to the house, that's what you saw. Okay, so anybody in the front yard would yeah. have been like, what the fuck? Well, yeah, I think because this is, like, in a state, it's set back, mm-hmm. so I don't think you would get somebody, like, walking their dog see it, just because you had to okay. have been on the grounds. I don't know if you want to look at a picture. Yeah, of it, I'm going to pull see. up a picture because I have some thoughts, but we can I'm do that later. Sh- I'm pretty sure it's not like real easy to see. Yeah. But he was walking to that house. So mm-hmm. he would have been on their lawn and he would okay. have seen it. No, that makes sense. I couldn't remember if he had like walked in, like as I was thinking oh, of no. like a grand entrance no. of like that. Oh, that would have been that, really dramatic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, he walked up the front lawn and when he got mm-hmm. close enough to the house, she was hanging outside a second story balcony. Okay. Her body was then taken to the office of San Diego Deputy Medical Examiner Dr. Jonathan Lucas, who performed an autopsy. Now, full disclosure, this is the first autopsy. There is another one much later on that is performed at the behest of our old friend, Dr. Phil. Oh, great. Yeah, but we will get to all of that later. 
This is the only one that is, like, state-sanctioned. Don't sue us, Dr. Phil. <laughs> Don't sue us, Dr. Phil. <laughs> Dr. Lucas found as a baseline, because this is what they do before they talk about injuries, that Rebecca was, before her untimely death, a very healthy and fit 32-year-old woman. She had long, glossy, well-groomed hair, intricately tended and microbladed eyebrows. That's like tiny tattooing to keep your shape. It's like semi-permanent. And permanent eyeliner in blue that had been tattooed on her face. She also had a recent manicure and pedicure and breast implants. Get it, girl. I know, right? She was wearing only a power balance band, which is a total scam, I found out. It's one of those bracelets that they say are going to give you better balance and charge you up with negative ions. Yeah. Yes. Look up power balance band scam. Doctors are like, no, that's not going to do anything for you. I mean, like in your free time. You don't Mm -hmm. have to now. And a Live Strong bracelet. Gotta gotta wear that Live Strong bracelet. So I tell you these things to show that Rebecca had taken care of herself both inside and out. All her internal organs were in perfect working order. And other than a previously broken arm that had been repaired with a plate and a benign polyp found in her uterus, there was no evidence that Rebecca had any problems at all. So we can confirm that she had not been suffering physically from anything. Dr. Lucas found that Rebecca had died from strangulation. Inside the neck, there was a fracture in the left arm of the hyoid bone, which is a buzzword in true crime. The left superior arm of the thyroid cartilage was also fractured, and so so was the left side of the cricoid cartilage. And this is all consistent with strangulation. There was no damage to the cervical spine, which is not super consistent with a long drop hanging which is what Dr. Lucas claims on the autopsy report that this was. Now, a long drop hanging, I think we might have talked about last week or the week before. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one that was is designed to break the victim's neck and kill them right away. Right. So you're not supposed to strangle. It's supposed okay. to be super fast. But that's not what happened. Yeah. Rebecca's death was not quick, although it might have been intended to be. Right. She also had significant head injuries including several abrasions on her forehead and two substantial hemorrhages on her scalp. These can look like blunt force trauma injuries. I guess they basically would be, either, no matter what your theory is. Mm. The rest of her body was also dotted with scratches and bruises and cuts, and they confirm that she's menstruating. And I tell you this because that blood comes back later. Toxicology reports come back universally negative, so she wasn't under the influence of Anything, not even a glass of wine. So clinically, what we have here is a healthy young woman that suffered a pretty violent death, but at whose hands? We have all of the clinical information now, so let's explore a little bit of the personal information. Rebecca Zahal was born on March 15, 1979 in northwestern Burma to her mother, Zhang Tin Par, and her father, Kwa Nin Tang tried. I'm sorry that if I mispronounced good. that. Uh, her family came from Chin, a, a, a Chin ethnicity, that's what it's called, and she was raised as a Protestant. Now, the Chin are a heavily persecuted minority group in Burma, so life there was probably not easy for Rebecca and her family. Mm-hmm. So they did, But they did leave. They tried to relocate. Um, and after leaving Burma, they lived in Nepal and then in Germany, and then Rebecca moved to the United States about 10 years before her death. In fact, her whole family relocated. But a lot of sources just say that she did. It's very weird. Which age-wise would make her 22 when she moved to America? 
Rebecca's parents and most of her family members have since settled in St. Joseph's, Missouri, which is a large and populous city inhabited by mostly middle-class white folks. Rebecca had an older sister, Mary Zahal Lerner, and a younger sister, Snowam Horwath, who lives in Germany, and a teenage sister, Zina Zahal. In 2002, Rebecca, then 23, married 36-year-old nursing student Neil Nalepa, who lived in Scottsdale, Arizona. So she relocated to Arizona. Mm. While her mental health record was revealed to be spotless, her criminal record during this time was not. In 2009, Rebecca was arrested for shoplifting after stealing $1,000 worth of jewelry from a Macy's in Phoenix, Arizona, to which she pled guilty. Which is a really weird blip, because nothing like this ever comes back, and it's not like she pocketed one thing. I mean, unless it was one really expensive thing. But, like, from a Macy's? You couldn't have got it from a counter? I don't know. But $1,000 worth of jewelry is not a tiny thing. Like, that, you planned on doing that. Yeah. In Arizona, Rebecca had worked as an ophthalmic... I can never pronounce that word. An ophthalmic technician until 2010. And that is where she met Jonah Shacknai in 2008. She examined his eyes, and during the exam, he asked her to dinner. Just looking into his eyes, you know. Now, even though at this point she does begin to date Jonah, she agrees to go to dinner, the two hit it off, they start dating. He is a respected, wealthy, and powerful CEO who was 22 years her senior. But at this time, she's still married to Neil. Oh. And remains so until December of 2010. Mm. So there's some overlap there. Whoops. There wasn't, like, a legal separation or anything? Uh, none that I could find. That doesn't mean that they were happy. Or I don't know the circumstances, right. although a lot of them indicate that she, like, had an affair with Jonah and then eventually ended up divorcing Neil. Well, I mean, um, that's how you that. know if you need to get a divorce or not. <laughs> yeah, test the waters first. I mean, I guess sure, that's like, what this she is what we want to do, right? <laughs> or also, um, a very insanely powerful rich man is in, like shows you attention, and you're like, oh, yes, I want that life, thank you. Yeah, that's nice. (laughs) (laughs) It is nice. Now let's talk about Jonah for a minute. Jonah Shacknai is fucking impressive. This man is no joke and has basically every connection in the free world. As of 2020, his estimated net worth is $3 billion. B-b-b-billion. Damn. I know. I want you all to remember that we are talking about a very powerful man. Does this mean he ever abused his power? No, it absolutely does not. It simply means that should he want to, he probably could. Mm. Jonah was born in Suffern, New York, and raised alongside his brother, Adam. He went to Colgate University, where he graduated with a bachelor's degree in science, then went on to Georgetown, where he received his Juris Doctorate. From 1977 until the end of 1982, Jonah worked as the chief aide to the Committee on Health Policy in the United States House of Representatives— and served on the Commission on the Federal Drug Approval Process and the National Council on Drugs. So there you have him in, like, national government. Mm -hmm. Jonah served on two federal cabinet-appointed positions. He was a member of the National Arthritis and Musculoskeletal and Skin Disease Advisory Council and on the U.S.-Israel Science and Technology Commission. Now there's an international connection. He was a senior partner at the law firm of Royer Shack, Nye, and Mele until 1982, or from 1982, sorry, until 1988, before ma- founding Medesis Pharmaceuticals in 1988. So he's also a lawyer, and then he founded his own pharmaceutical company. Okay. 
So he's a smart guy, too. He's super smart. He yeah. also does a lot of philanthropic things. Like that's, yeah, that's what it sounds like. There's a lot to indicate, like, he was a, a good and honest guy. But, mm-hmm. but just had a lot of money and power. And the fact of the matter is, he does. I mean, should should anyone have been able to hide an ugly incident? Like, this guy could have. He had the means. He absolutely doesn't had the mean means. that he did it. It does not mean that he did it. I'm not saying I believe that he did. Right. But it is important to kind of, like— understand that it's a possibility. Yeah. He was also awarder it, awarded, I can't talk. Awarder it. <laughs> I like <Yeah>. that. <laughs> I want to keep it in there, that's okay. why. <laughs> keep it, but I'll go back to keep my sanity. Yeah. He also was awarded a Doctorate of Humane Letters by NYCPM, an affiliate of Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons. He received the National Award from the Freedoms Foundation at Valley Forge and the President's Award from the American Society for Dermatologic Surgery. He also has several Lifetime Achievement Awards. In 1997, he received the Arizona Entrepreneur of the Year Award. In 2000, he was selected as Entrepreneurial Fellow at the Carl Eller Center of the University of Arizona. It just, it doesn't stop. Right, so Rebecca, like, hit the jackpot. Yes, <laughs> Basically, she was like, whoa, win, win. (laughs) So in the personal department, Jonah was married twice before he started dating Rebecca. His first marriage to Kimberly James resulted in a divorce and a three-year custody battle over their two children. Um, Their names are available. There's no need for us to say them. I don't need to do that. And his second marriage to child psychologist Dina Romano produced one son, Maxfield. Yeah, Maxfield. Nice. But, I mean, that's. Sounds I like was it thinking like Maxwell, but um, but Max Fields. This is Max Fields. I might have typed it wrong. Aaron Shacknai, who they called Max or Maxie. Mm-hmm. Cute. Yeah. In 2007, not long before he met Rebecca, Jonah had purchased the historic Spreckles Mansion for a cool 13 million dollars. Nice. Jonah wanted to use it as a summer home. Mm-hmm. Leslie, why don't you tell us a little bit about this historic estate? Sure. All right. So the Spreckles Mansion, which this one is actually called their beach house because there is a Spreckles. And anybody that lives in this area, because this would be San Diego area as well, they might be able to help me confirm this a little bit better. But from what I've researched is that there is a Spreckles Mansion in San Francisco and in San Diego. Yes. And the family that I'll go into that owns the one in San Diego has a summer home on the Coronado. Oh, really? In, yeah, Peninsula. So that's what this is. It's more like oh. their beach house. It's not so actually it the Spreckles Mansion. So it makes sense that it was his summer home. Yes. Okay, so it's mm-hmm. designed to be that. Yes. Because for me, I was like, this is like a crazy, that's your summer home? <laughs> like, yeah. No, that it is their summer home. Okay. And that they later built this guest house that's attached to it, kind of. Makes sense. Okay. The beach house was designed by architect Harrison Albright and built in 1910 as a wedding present for the son of John D. Spreckles. Mm. John Spreckles was like the emperor of San Diego. Ooh. He took a bankrupt village and turned it into a major city. John was the son of Adolf Klaus Spreckles, who goes by Klaus. Yeah, not a lot of Adolfs running (laughs) around today. He was a German immigrant and entrepreneur. Most notable for his, uh, basically like his sugar tycoon, uh, which was the, in California, which was Spreckle Sugar Company. Mm-hmm. Klaus married his childhood sweetheart, Anna Christina Mangles. 
and the two were married while living in America and had 13 children. 13! But only five survived into, like, past childhood. One of which was John Spreckles. The family had roots in New York City. I think that's where um, Anna, their mom, was actually living. Uh, So for a time, John lived on the East Coast trying to make a name for himself like his father did. He then moved back to San Francisco where his brother, Adolph, was growing his father's sugar business, which now expanded from California to Hawaii. And so I think it was like San Francisco area down towards uh, San Diego area and then out to Hawaii is where the sugar company was. So Adolph and his wife lived there on in Spreckles Mansion, which was used as a hospital during the wars and also hosted lots of galas and extravagant parties. So, again, this is the Spreckles Mansion that's in San Francisco. Nothing bad happened there. Um, nice. All good things. And Danielle Steele lives there now. How romantic. I know. She's very, um, she's like recluse. So you don't really oh. you don't really know what it looks like now. You don't so, know if she kept up with it, if it has. She's like living the like same. a gray garden situation. Yeah, but a lot of her um, a lot of her novels, I think she takes inspiration from that. Oh area. yeah, those bodice rippers. Yeah, but I I think she it wasn't it was like more recent that she bought it. So it's yeah. So anything recently that she's written about. While staying in San Francisco, John was beginning to build his empire in San Diego in the Coronado Peninsula. By the late 1890s, he had acquired control of the Coronado Beach Company, the Hotel del Coronado, and the San Diego streetcar system, converting its carriages from horse-drawn to electrified. John bought the Union Daily Paper, then the Tribune, and by the early 1900s, he had bought the Coronado Peninsula in its entirety. What? Yeah. You know you're rich when you can buy a whole peninsula. (laughs) Oh, my God. So John and his family were living in San Diego on five acres in a huge mansion designed by architect Harrison Albright. In 1908, he asked Harrison to design another home on one of the plots of ocean front property he was saving to build on for himself and his family. The house, this house, like his one in San Diego, would be built using reinforced steel bars for support against earthquakes, which was kind of uncommon at the time. Mm, like definitely smart, necessary, though. but yeah. uncommon. He had experienced an earthquake while living in San Francisco in 1906 and wanted to take every precaution possible. This beach house was a grand Spanish revival-style home with four bedrooms, six baths, and approximately 6,600 square feet of living space and served as the center of entertaining for San Diego's high society. High society? Not long after it was built, John moved into another mansion on the other side of Coronado and gave his home at 1043 Ocean Boulevard, where our story takes place today, to his son Klaus and daughter-in-law Ellis as a wedding present in 1910. Really nice wedding present. Yeah, seriously. There's so much money in this case. I know. Jesus. In 1928, Klaus worked with architect Richard Requa, R-E-Q-U-A, to build a guest house in a garage with two apartments above it. So now we have the guest house attached to... That's, and that's where Adam is. Klaus and his wife, Ellis, lived in the mansion until 1967. Um, and then this is, I just grabbed from a recent uh, realtor site, because like this house is always trying... Didn't it just sell? It, it might have just sold. It I think may it have. did. So many of the home's features have been renovated and restored over the decades, including high wood beam ceilings, raw iron window guards and balconies, 
red tile roofs, multi-panned windows, crown moldings, and wood floors. Today, the property measures 10,500 square feet, including 10 bedrooms and 11 bathrooms. There's also a four-car garage and a 1,000-square-foot basement. The enclosed courtyard features an elegant pool and a spa. Mm. So um, I was looking up the, the photos while you were talking to yeah, get a I'm better idea. Right now. And where she was hanging off yes. that balcony is in that enclosed courtyard. So he probably would have come out of his guest house mm-hmm. and then seen her, but people on the outside wouldn't have. Right. Okay. That's that's. I couldn't like place the whole estate where the street mm-hmm. was in my brain, yes. but I knew that it wasn't like oh, I'm walking by in the morning with my dog at 6 a.m. and I see that. But no. it was out. It's out. like it's almost like a U-shape in there. Yeah, I can see now how it is. It's like the mm-hmm. side. And there's this little balcony where she hangs from. And what I was thinking was those bruises on her body could literally just be from her getting herself down from there. And she would have had to have hit. We the get, wall. We get there. Do you? Okay. Yes. All right. <laughs> so that's what I'm just, I'm just, so visually, it's just a little balcony in this courtyard. Yeah, it's courtyard. not big. It's yeah. like, a, like almost like a little, like, mm-hmm. just like a tiny little thing. Yeah. Like, what do they call that? The the mother-in-law balcony? Mother-in-law suite type thing. Yeah. yeah. It's, it, it isn't, well, like there'll where, be pictures in the Oh, no, I suite. think a mother-in-law balcony is where the door only opens out. <laughs> It's single and it just opens oh, out. Oh no! <laughs> oh no! Anyway, but yeah, so uh, so yeah, it's a beautiful home. It is beautiful. I'm like looking at a picture right now. I mean, we'll put up all the pictures. Yes, we can, so you guys can really get the full scope. Here's one from above. Mm-hmm. So yeah, okay, yeah, it's like inside the walled like little courtyard. Yes. So even the guest house is huge. It almost looks like a fire escape, this balcony. It's like very a little small. Bit. It's mm-hmm. just got like a little like little iron railing type thing. Yeah. It's just a way to walk out and be like, hello. Get a little fresh air. See the beautiful scenery. Yeah. And you're the pool and spa. Have your Romeo and Juliet moment. Yeah. There you go. Okay. Cool. Thank you for telling us about Spreckles. So clearly we're like, we're walking around some pretty rich territory. Yes. <laughs> now we're about... Up to the time of the incidents that occur, because I haven't really spoken about what happened to Max yet, but I'm getting there. So this leaves one key player remaining that we haven't discussed, and that's Jonah's brother, Adam. Adam is six years younger than Jonah. He grew up happily in a middle-class household. He and Jonah were always close. He calls it close for, like, their age gap. So oh, that makes sense. I say that with him. my brother, too, because oh, yeah? we're four and a half years, and I'm like, we're close for our age gap. Yeah, you are. And Jonah, oh, like, states that he always has his little brother's back. Mm-hmm. This is a statement that I was, of course, going to, like, bite him in the ass. But that's just something they said. Um, and Adam had landed in Memphis, Tennessee, where he spent 28 years working as a tugboat captain on the Mississippi River, which is such a jaunty job. It is jaunty. A job that provided him with relative amount of freedom as he would work for 28 days and then take off 28 days. Love that life. I know. So your schedule is 28 days straight of boating, but then 28 days straight of nothing. That's just like tugboat captaining. Yep. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Toot, toot. (laughs) How wonderful. I know. Now, this is a stark contrast to his brother's busy, like, businessman lifestyle. Adam also had the same girlfriend for the better part of two decades, though the pair were never married or even moved in together. They just liked what they had going and kept on. 
I bet she wasn't happy. (laughs) (laughs) No? No. No, right? (laughs) Bet she had a lot of explaining to do to her friends. Mm. (laughs) She hated girl nights. Oh, no. (laughs) And that's about all we have on Adam. He doesn't have, like, a notable education or a criminal record or, uh, I mean, like, anything. He's just, like, kind of an average dude who tugboated along. And so by the end of the summer of 2011, Rebecca and Jonah's relationship was quite serious. So as I mentioned before, they had gotten together in 2008, so they'd been together for a little while. Rebecca was well acquainted with Jonah's family, especially his young son, Max, who she seems to have had like some kind of parental responsibilities for, like she had a hand in taking care of him, not legally, but um, certainly in practice and emotionally. So on the morning of July 11th, 2011, the Shacknai household was pretty busy. Jonah was packing up his two older children who were flying back to their mother that day. So previously, all of his kids had been in the house with them. That was probably fun. Yeah, probably. Rebecca also had her 13-year-old sister, Zena, staying with them. Okay. So this was like their whole little family was there together. I imagine it was very vacation-y. Oh, I'm getting sad because that sounds really nice. Yeah. <laughs> that, in that big, beautiful house? Yeah. Absolutely. Zena was scheduled on a flight back to her parents' house in Missouri the next day. And that day, Jonah left with his two older children, leaving Max and Rebecca and Zena alone until he was scheduled to return later that afternoon after seeing the kids safely onto their plane, stopping by the gym. So he was mm-hmm. going to drop them off at the airport, make sure they got on their plane, go to the gym, and then come home. Max was playing on the second floor balcony. So this is after Jonah has left. And he's playing with his Razor scooter. And Zena and Rebecca were downstairs chatting. Rebecca went to use the bathroom. And while she was in there, she heard a crash. Zena was in another room downstairs. She came out to discover Max at the bottom of the stairs, unconscious. Bars of the banister from the railing above had been splintered and broken and fallen to the ground. And the chandelier had come down as well. This is like a big mess. So in a panic, Rebecca told Zena to call 911 and then rushed to kneel beside Max, obviously, and called Jonah. She was kneeling by Max's limp body, horrified and confused. Um, And now from what her and her sister could gather in this frenzied, insane moment was that they thought Max had fallen down the stairs. That's the only thing Rebecca could tell police she could only say that he fell because she didn't see it happen. Right. She just found him at the bottom. And that when she got to his side, he said the word ocean. Later, between investigators and Rebecca and Zena, they would piece together that Max had scootered full speed towards the railing and was unable to stop. Mm. He barreled through the bars of the railing because he's a little guy short and first hit the chandelier, which knocked the chandelier down, then bounced off that and hit the staircase railing before landing face down on the ground. Oh, my God. (gasps) Yes, which is like the most tragic, unspeakable accident in the world. Right. He suffered terrible injuries, obviously, to his spinal cord and facial bones. The spinal injury had affected both his heart rate and his breathing. So a lot of reports say he has a heart attack. That's basically what what puts him in critical condition, which is a little uncommon for this kind of injury, but they do connect the dots, and they say yeah. that's it does make sense. By the time emergency services arrived, Max's brain had suffered extensive oxygen deprivation, mm. which is not, which is difficult, if not impossible, to come back from. Right. After 10 minutes, your brain is basically dead. And this is every parent's nightmare. 
it's just one of those moments where you look away for one second and all hell breaks loose. Mm -hmm. And while it may seem impossible, these kind of things really do happen with more frequency than people might think. Yeah. Unspeakable accidents, they're they're there, man. Right. And And the most common one in the household is the drowning. Oh, yeah? Yeah, that's the most common. More common than a fall? Uh, Fall is next, but that's more um, not deathly. That's definitely more like uh, that's more common for for like intense injuries. Interesting, but not for fatal deaths. Huh. And I think drowning is first, and then and then falling. I this this is so weird, but like I've my my aunt had a house like this, and I've seen others before where you have that like lofty space upstairs mm-hmm. where like there's bedrooms, but on the outside is like a kind of a balcony. It's like a platform. The yeah. hallway is open so you can yeah. see down to the other floor. That's exactly what this was. And every yeah. time I'm in a house like that, I'm like, what if somebody fell? Mm-hmm. My brain always goes to what if I fell? Yep. But I always think that with like kids running back and forth, I have never not thought like, what if they, I used to, well, when I used to babysit everybody's favorite cousin, Nikki, because I'm <laughs> old, um, I would think the same thing. If she was running through the hallway, I'd be like, what if she falls off that balcony? And, and yep. my brain was like, this is a totally irrational thought. There mm. are railings there. Why would she fall? How would that happen? But this is how that would happen. That's how that would happen. It does happen. Yep. So Max is taken to Rady Children's Hospital where things are not looking good. The next day, Rebecca dropped off Zena at the airport and then picked up Adam, who had come to support his brother at the at the behest of his parents. In fact, Adam had, Jonah had told him about what happened with Max. He was very upset. And then Adam talked to their parents and they said, you know, you have to go out there and be with him. Get on a plane. You're at your 28 days of not tugboating. Go out there. Mm-hmm. Take care of your brother. And he actually couldn't even reach Jonah. He got a hold of Rebecca and he was like, should I, should I come down? Like, what do I do? And she said, well, you just... Do whatever you think is best, basically. And so he decided to come down. So she was handling all of this, basically. Um, So then Adam and Rebecca went to dinner with one of Rebecca's friends. Then you can find his name. It's totally inconsequential. It's just some dude that they met for dinner. Okay. And then they went back to the house. Adam, in his report, says that he went straight to the guest house and went to bed. Neighbors report hearing loud music and voices coming from the mansion at around 3 a.m., like party-style music. Like it sounded like somebody was having a gathering. After recovering Rebecca's cell phone, detectives revealed that according to AT&T records, from roughly 8 p.m. until 10 p.m., Rebecca had talked and texted with her older sister, Mary, who confirmed that Zena, the younger sister, had arrived home safely. Okay. Again, checks out. She gets home from dinner. She calls. Did the little one get home safely? Yes, she did. And then she just chats on and off with her sister for a little while. Can you, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine being Xena and that happening and then just having you just to go, go home? Yeah. I'd uh, be like, I'd be like, mom, I think I need to stay. She's 13 too. Part of you might have been know. like, I need to go be with my mom. Maybe, maybe, maybe. Yeah, that's true. She is young, but that is, that's still wild. That is girl is probably on the plane like shaking. Oh my God. I don't. I can't imagine even what I would be thinking. Although at thirteen, I probably would want to go home to my mom if I had seen that. I'd probably too, but I'd almost probably want my mom to fly to me first and oh, go home yeah. with me. That's a good thought because, like, I there's no way part of her doesn't blame herself. She was sitting downstairs when right. it happened. Yeah. Again, you don't think this six year old is probably going to plummet to his death. You're like, he's upstairs playing. It's fine. Yeah. But like, how do you not? How do you mm-hmm. not feel partially responsible even at that age? 
Mm-hmm. I didn't even think of that. Ugh, poor thing. So then at 10.48 p.m., Rebecca receives a text from Nina Romano, which is Max's um, mother's twin sister. So their names are, okay. I think, Nina and Dina. Nice. Yeah. And Nina said she wanted to come to the house to talk about Max's accident. That's the, uncomfortable. It's very uncomfortable. And Re- Rebecca didn't reply to that message. What do you even say? No, and she shouldn't. No. And apparently they had talked before. Okay. She had asked her, like, what what happened? He fell down the stairs and then had a heart attack? That doesn't add up. What happened? And you're like, yeah, it doesn't. And that this was her exact wild. response. Her exact response was, I know, it's crazy. I'm so glad you're here. Right. But again, there are a lot of people that feel suspect of this. And okay. we'll pick it apart later. But to me, that, mm-hmm. I know. I'd be like, what the fuck? I know. It doesn't make any sense. Right. Police said that Rebecca then checked her voicemail a few hours later at 12.50 a.m. So I guess that's why we, the last time she was seen, quote, quote, seen alive is 12.50 a.m. on that day because she did do something. She checked her voicemail. Okay. So while no one saw her, we have evidence that she was still living at that point in time. Okay. And she listened to a message. Billing records do not show who left that message. Um, and the message was deleted, so they couldn't listen to it, which you can recover a deleted message. I don't know why they didn't get it. Yeah. But police stated it was a message regarding regarding the worsening of Max's condition. And later, Jonah Shackney went on record and was interviewed publicly saying that he had called Rebecca and left her this message saying, like, things have taken a turn for the worse with Max and it doesn't look good. Mm. That's basically what was on this message. And they, there wasn't a lot of hope left for him at that point. Tough message to get. So that's the message she gets at 1250. Okay. Um, and she immediately deletes it. I guess you don't want that ever again. You heard it. That's enough. I, yeah. No, I mean, well, and also I delete messages that I've Yeah, I'm terrible about to. deleting things. Now, after this, the next event that we can confirm beyond the shadow of a doubt is that Adam called 911 at 945 a.m. Okay. That's our next documented event. The rest of that time is dark. Okay. We don't know what happens between 12.50 and 6.45 a.m. Except the neighbors believe that there was a Except rager Except for the neighbors said they the heard end. loud music. Mm-hmm. They thought it was coming from Spreckles. And we know that somehow Rebecca's life ended at the end of a rope. Okay. And the medical examiner said that he suspected her death occurred around 3 a.m. Okay. So, and, yeah. the, and you were saying that the house was like clean- no, that was that my was, opening. Oh, that was your opening. But oh, okay. I've seen pictures, and it isn't dirty. Yeah, I was just going to say, because I didn't know if you got that idea from, like, maybe... No. Mm-mm. No, okay. but, I mean, if you look pictures of the bedroom, like, the carpet is clean, the bed is, like, yeah. everything is... It doesn't look like she has just immediately bleach scrubbed. And they don't find evidence of cleaner or anything. So. I would believe... So, right now, my first thought is that if neighbors did actually hear something... She probably was playing something while she was maybe painting that shit on the wall. Maybe, yeah, for and sure. Getting, getting ready. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe she was like hearing her own voice, like yelling at her. Maybe she was yelling herself. Yeah. So, Deputy Medical Examiner Jonathan Lucas ruled Rebecca's death a suicide. The initial medical investigator had suspected a homicide, as we stated in the beginning, and Rebecca's family agreed to this. Now, they thought she has. They still think she was murdered. According to Rebecca's family, she was a devout Christian and believed suicide was like a really terrible sin. Mm -hmm. Um, So she wouldn't have done that. They also said she wasn't the kind of woman who would have wanted to be discovered in that state, like Mm -hmm. naked and tied up. 
Right. And and we've established that all signs point to the fact that she cared about how she presented herself to the world. Mm-hmm. So I get connecting those dots. Representatives for the Zahals also claimed that being, you know, these are like lawyers, claim that being found in that state, bound, gagged, and nude, suggests a crime that is sexual in nature and that it appears that there is a desire to punish or humiliate the person who has been victimized. Mm-hmm. I get that too. Because mm-hmm. in some cases, yeah, that's exactly what that is. Yeah. Now, there are two versions of the hours between 12.50 a.m. and 6.45 a.m. that have been ruled as truthful in a court of law. Interesting. Yep. If we are to believe Dr. Lucas, this is the the San Diego County Medical Examiner, Rebecca returned home from dinner and went back to the Spreckles Mansion alone. She talked to her sister for a while, checked on the fact that her younger sister had returned home, and then passed the time by herself tensely. At 12.50, she checked her voicemail after realizing that she had missed a call from Jonah. When she heard that Max was most likely not going to survive his injuries, she became overwhelmed with guilt. She had been in charge of Max at the time of his death, and thinking about this and him not making it through his injuries kind of made her tether snap, like something just went off in her brain. Now, guilt does do curious things to people. That is a fact. According to Dr. Jana Field, quote, if we consciously or unconsciously believe that we can't rectify the situation or save face, our brain triggers a fear response in order to protect us from further negative emotions. As a result, bursts of stress hormones motivate us to enact safety strategies such as dominance, aggression, submission, or avoidance. So after hearing that message, chemically, her brain would have produced a fight-or-flight moment. It would have just been like, holy shit, and flood you with those kind of chemicals to make you panic, basically. It is supposed that at this point, Rebecca hatched a plan to end her own life. She went to the garage to find a long rope, the kind that's used in water sport towing. So this is something that was used in wakeboarding or water skiing. Mm -hmm. And maybe she had gone water skiing with them, and that's why she knew it was in there. Mm -hmm. Then she grabbed a couple knives from the kitchen and went upstairs to the bedroom that had access to the second-story balcony. This is not, this is in the master suite. It's like a guest room. In her distress, she takes off her clothing and then picks up a tube of black paint, rifles through the paintbrushes that are in the room before finding one that she wanted to use, discarding the others on the floor. Because as I mentioned, there's like a bunch of paintbrushes on the floor, little ones. They're not like house painting brushes. They're like make-a-painting brushes. She then painted this disjointed final thought on the door in a haze, because obviously, like I said, she's in a high state of panic and not rationality. Then she tied the rope to the bedpost. Um, Then, in order to avoid bailing at the last minute or have people hear her, she bound first her feet, and then we're not sure what order it is, but then her hands, and she also had put the gag in her mouth, so if she screamed, no one would hear her, basically. Okay. Because she wants to go through with it. All of this is leading to she really wants the end result to be she Mm -hmm. doesn't live through this. And that sounds like that would be the right order. Right. Because you wouldn't be able to bind your feet with your hands bound. No, it's definitely feet first. I don't know if it's gag then hands. But according to Dr. Lucas, Rebecca's hands were bound in a loose enough knot that she could slide one out and then put it back in. Okay. After she like, because she had to climb up on that balcony too. Remember, Mm -hmm. you'd have to use your hands for that. That's true, yeah. And And her hands are behind her back. So, okay. just FYI. Then she climbed up on the railing and let herself fall. She doesn't, like, 
pencil dive. She doesn't jump straight down. She just, she just kind of falls, mm-hmm. which is why a long drop hanging didn't go as planned. Because mm-hmm. in a long drop that's performed in like um, a gallows, a trap door goes out from under you, right. which is a drop. And when people like hang themselves with purpose and that is the result, they like jump off or they kick out a box from underneath them. Right. She fell sideways. And that makes hit, sense. It does. Okay. And hit the house, the roof, the railing, and the trees on her way down, which yeah. she didn't plan on, which caused all of her other injuries. Okay. It is suspected that the trauma to her head was caused because, like you guessed, it hit the roof. Mm-hmm. And this, and then she finally, you know, once once she came to a stop hanging, she would have strangled to death, mm-hmm. which, as we know from previous cases, isn't quick. Mm-hmm. You don't strangle in like a second. It takes like a good five minutes. It could take 30 minutes. It could take 30 minutes. And we don't know how long it took. And maybe that's part of why she had planned on gagging herself because she had to have been struggling. Right. And if she didn't want to hear anybody to hear it, she would have been like, well, this will prevent people from hearing me. Right. Members of the San Diego Police Medical Examiner's Office even like stage a recreation with um, like a volunteer, I don't know what, she, what you would call her, that to someone who demonstrated exactly how Rebecca could have tied herself up before hanging herself. So they showed that it was possible. It is possible to put, get your hands in the loop. It is possible to pull your hand out. It is possible to put your hand back in. Yeah. There's a little bit of argument there because the knot that they tied in the demonstration had the knot, I guess the closure to it, um, furthest from her palm, and hers was closest to her palm. Why can't they just ever do it the right way in a reenactment? I can't tell you. Just, like, do it how it is. <laughs> I don't know. So the people don't speculate. Exactly. (laughs) But the fact that the loose end of the rope used to tie her hands was found closed in her hand Mm -hmm. is really the nail in that coffin. That's what really, really drove that That part home because she would have held it to tighten herself back up. Yeah. So, okay, that's one theory. Rewind. Now let's try again. According to experts hired by the defense, Rebecca was murdered by Adam Shacknai in an effort to rape her. That night, the pair came home from dinner and both went into the main house for a chat. Adam hung around while Rebecca talked to her sister on and off for a little while. Adam was making advances at Rebecca, and he wanted to have sex with her, but she turned him down. Adam would not take no for an answer and wouldn't leave the main house. Then Adam became further enraged and agitated over not only her refusal, but also the realization that Rebecca had a role in his nephew's possible imminent death. Adam was angry that Rebecca wasn't watching Max when he died, and he felt that she was to blame. So he hit her over the head several times, then tied her hands and feet with nautical knots. Now, the fact that these are nautical knots has a lot of bearing because he's a tugboat captain. And according to Rebecca's family, she had no idea how to tie them. Google. Uh, Yeah, I mean, you're right. But again, to him, they would have been second nature. Mm -hmm. Then he tore off her clothes, gagged her with a t-shirt, and attempted to sodomize her with the dull end of a steak knife before strangling her to death. Hence why there is menstrual blood on the end of a steak knife. Because there is no explanation in Rebecca in the other version as to why that happened. I'll Mm -hmm. get back around to it a little bit, but that's what is said here. Um, And then he strangled her to death with his hands. Now, there is no argument that Rebecca died of strangulation. All the injuries point to pressure on her neck like that. No argument. Rebecca could have sustained um, head injuries and multiple other wounds also while fighting for her life in this event. So they say that all the wounds on her body are defensive wounds. Then realizing what he had done, Adam staged her suicide to cover his tracks 
and went back to the guest house, emerging once again at 6.45 to discover her body. So that's the end of it. That's murder. So what did I mean when I said both versions were deemed true in a court of law? Well, initially, San Diego um, Sheriff Bill Gore announced on September 2nd, 2011, that Rebecca's death was ruled a suicide, and Max, who died just four days later, had his death also ruled an accident. And it was also ruled that neither of them was the result of any foul play. So the explanation that San Diego County accepted is that Max died in a tragic accident, Rebecca could not take the guilt, and she ended her own life. Mm -hmm. However, Sheriff Gore, who investigated the death, stated of the family's reluctance to accept the suicide ruling, quote, we laid out the case extensively to them in Missouri to answer their questions, and it is unfortunate that they cannot accept the results. On September 7th, the Zahao family launched the website justiceforrebecca.org. There's also a Facebook page. You can check out all of it. I have seeking donations to fund their own investigation to, into Rebecca's death. The site states, quote, it was obvious that the sheriff's department had worked too hard to paint this picture of suicide, and they were not about to let the Zahaus ruin it. Again, this is a very upset family. In late September, they continued to demand that the case be reopened. So on September 20th of 2011, Jonah Shacknai himself wrote a letter to California Attorney General Kamala Harris requesting a state review of the investigation. Jonah himself said he didn't doubt the findings, but he hoped that if he got this review for them, it would bring, quote, confidence, comfort, and resolution to um, Rebecca's family. However, Chief Assistant Attorney General Dane Gillette replied the following day, quote, we must decline your invitation to review this investigation at this time. So San Diego County really believed they had, there was no reason to even go back and look at it. They were mm -hmm. like, no, this is, this is what happened. We're not going back. On September 30th, family members appeared on NBC's Today Show and called for a completely independent investigation by the state attorney general's office. They're really on a crusade. Side note, there are also those who suspect, and they're not people in the family. These are like people that weren't involved in their lives at all, that suspect that Rebecca actually strangled Max and then staged his accident. Mm. They lean into the fact that she told the police she thought Max had fallen down the stairs when clearly something bigger had happened. Like, well, she was panicking to cover it up. And there also is one, I don't know who the expert is, but somebody said, one of the doctors that, that saw Max, I think post-mortem even, I don't know, said that his injuries would have been consistent with being strangled to death. Then again, his injuries could have been consistent with all kinds of things. Right. It depends on how you frame it. If you ask me, this is a panicked woman freaking the fuck out because her billionaire boyfriend's son had an awful accident on her watch. Mm -hmm. Like, honestly, what would you do? And there's still her 13-year-old sister mm -hmm. who is there who I think, I think would have come clean about some weird shit later. Agreed. <laughs> yes, agreed. And there are those who claim that Max's eventual heart issues caused by oxygen deprivation— would also have been more in line with someone trying to strangle him than a fall that resulted in a spinal injury. Mm -hmm. But that all, to me, feels a lot like desperate speculation. Truly, truly, truly believe that Max's death was a horrible accident. Yeah. But so horrible. you know what? If I was hit th that child's parent, I may be looking for someone who murdered my child. I may not be able to wrap my brain around the fact that it just happened, and there's no reason. Of course. So I get that. I get it 100%. And what day, what what was the date that um, it happened? Again? Max died, oh, not died. Max's accident was on the 11th. Of what the, month? 
July. Of July. And then Rebecca was found on the 13th. Okay. And now and now we're in September. We're in September, yeah. So it's still all very new. Yeah, it's very fresh. And you're, yeah. And it's new, but you've also been sitting with information for a bit, mm-hmm. too. So other thoughts are coming. Yep. Yeah. Members of Rebecca's family disputed this finding and filed a $10 million wrongful death lawsuit against Adam Shacknai. They brought in an additional expert, well-known forensic pathologist, Dr. Cyril Wecht, who stated, quote, In my opinion, Rebecca Zahau's death was a homicide. She was manually strangled, and it was set up to look like a suicidal hanging. And Dr. Wecht had been drummed up by none other than good old Dr. Phil in an episode of his show devoted to the case. Um, They had her exhumed and re-examined. Okay. So, yeah. Hmm. That's the second autopsy. The second autopsy where you can find a whole other set of paperwork by this other dude says cause of death homicide. So there are two autopsy reports. One says suicide, one says homicide Hmm. by two separate medical examiners. The jury in said civil trial found Adam Shacknai responsible for Rebecca's death and granted her family a $5 million judgment for loss of love and companionship as well as an additional $167,000 for the loss of financial support. So they found him guilty of touching her with intent to hurt her and that touching resulting in her death. It's like a really weird wording, but that's exactly what it is. Okay. I know. Then on February, now we're in 2018 when this happens. The appeal takes a while. They exhume her. All of this stuff takes time. So then in February of 2019, Adam Shacknai appeals the judgment with the defense arguing procedural errors and juror misconduct. Prior to final arguments being presented to the judge, the Shacknai's insurance company and the Zahal family reached a settlement of $600,000, resulting in the civil case being dismissed with prejudice and vacating the original $5 million judgment. But the civil conviction of Adam Shacknai for in t- touching Rebecca Zahal with the intent to hurt her and the hurting leading to her death remains. That's still there. Mm. He just didn't have to pay the $5 million. From what I can understand, this whole thing is extremely blurry, and by now that might be gone, but I believe that it—I mean, that's, that was their judgment. Right. In the end, it's really, really, really hard to say what actually happened. While both stories are plausible, there is a little matter of DNA. How is it possible that not a speck of DNA that didn't belong to Rebecca was found on the scene if it was indeed a homicide? Mm-hmm. Nothing. Furthermore, how did none of Adam's DNA appear on her body if he had performed CPR on her? Right. They didn't find any of his DNA anywhere on her. Some people suspect that he didn't do any of those things. He didn't perform any kind of life-saving measures. And that's why, because he knew damn well she was dead. Right. There's also the little matter of the message left behind. Quote, she saved him, can you save her? Absolutely no one has, a, has like an, a concrete explanation for that. Rebecca's family can only say that the handwriting is not hers. It, it's terrifying. It looks like red rum. It's just like obviously somebody out of their gourd painting. So I don't know. Um, but you know your own family and how they write. I could identify, you know, how my family members write. And yet her fingerprints are found on the paint. Specks of the paint are found on her body. And those who speculate murder say her killer wrote this on the wall, referring to her saving Max and then challenging whomever found her to try and bring her back as well. Those who say suicide believe that she was speaking of herself and pleading for forgiveness. She did save Max in the end. She's the one who found him and had her sister call 911. And she herself might have felt the need to be saved from her own guilt. 
So there are many interpretations of this, but we can't say which one is true. Hmm. Then there are also those who speculate that Adam was not alone when he discovered the body, even though there is no evidence to support that. They simply point to the fact that he mumbles things in the 911 call. But honestly, I've listened to it a bunch of times, and it sounds like he's talking to her body. Like, at one point, he's like, are you dead? Like, he's like, uh, you would. You know that person. Yeah. You'd be talking to them. Right. Ooh. Mm-hmm. And what of this supposed sexual assault? Autopsy reveals no vaginal trauma or evidence of rape or assault. The menstrual blood on the knife did not contain enough vaginal cells to conclusively have been retrieved from her body in a forceful way. Perhaps Rebecca simply had gotten her period in the middle of this whole terrible event, and it got messy. Perhaps she had an awful condition called premenstrual psychosis, wherein a woman will suffer psychotic symptoms set off by the flood of hormones that occurs during that point in her cycle. And that had a hand in it. Right. We don't know. And to go even one further, Dina Shack, Nia Max's mother, has been quoted before as saying that she believes both Max and Rebecca were murdered by still a different assailant who has yet to be identified. Hmm. And let's not forget that the Shack Nyes had the best legal team and advisors the state of California could offer. If anybody knew how to make this disappear, it would have been them. Well, they didn't really make it disappear. No, but <laughs> I don't know. This case is so interesting to so many people because we don't and probably never will know beyond the shadow of a doubt what happened that night. Both stories are so lurid and detailed and plausible that we simply don't know what to believe. Even in the complete absence of evidence that a homicide was committed, nobody can deny how it looked. Do our brains simply want to lean on the more dramatic of the two tales? Would we rather think an innocent woman was murdered than that she took her own life in a moment of extreme grief and guilt? And if so, why? Why is one more satisfying than the other? I can't really say. What I can say is that I could never have managed to give you every single piece of information out there on this case. It's too vast. But I think this is all of the important stuff. And from here, you're just going to have to make up your own mind. Hmm. Yeah. Damn it, Holly. I'm so, I wish I could say more concrete things in this case. I just can't. And her family, Rebecca's family, is still very active in, in pursuing this. And they're very active online. And, you know, if they... If they feel they need justice beyond what already happened. I get it. That's your family member. Yeah. Wow. So that is that is our coverage of the hard-to-pin-down unfortunate death of Rebecca Zahow. Oh, so wow. I know. It's wild, right? Yeah. Like, what do you even do with that? I don't— <laughs> I'm so sorry to— um, to Sarah, who requested this case, if I didn't, if I didn't like, <laughs> solve it for you. <laughs> please, please let me know if you have extra thoughts. I know that um, several of our listeners said they've driven by this house and, like, actually seen it with their own eyeballs. Yeah. Interested to hear your thoughts on any of this. And, and really, I feel like this is an invitation for discussion. So get in our Facebook group, and, uh, and we can talk about it. Mm -hmm. I will entertain any and all theories. It'll be interesting when you do throw the photos up because it was hard to kind of visualize even Max's death, but seeing— There's the path of, like— Yeah, there's, yeah. like, a photo of the path of, of it, and it makes sense. It's, like, this loop around staircase, so mm -hmm. it makes sense where he would have fallen over, hit the chandelier— then hit the banister mm -hmm. and then back down to the floor for someone to then be like, I think he fell down the stairs. Like, yeah. I, I, I don't understand. And then this fell. I don't. Well, also, if you just, all you see is a catastrophe, 
Yeah. Your brain isn't going to go, I've solved the puzzle. Right. She's right not going to be like, so he fell, he ran but through the pathway. <laughs> yeah. Like, why would she's you think he fell down the stairs? Can you come and help? That's- and his scooter was like down there on the ground, yeah. but still, maybe he fell down the stairs on his scooter. That'll <sighs> fuck you up. Guys, don't let your children or adults or anyone drunk scooter on the second floor. No, stay, stay off the razor scooter when you're on the second floor. Just, yeah. Just don't do it. Oh, oh man. I know. Wow. Toast? Toast. <laughs> Woof. Okay. Well, I feel like we can only toast for, okay, for the people that believe that this was a suicide mm-hmm. to <laughs> Rebecca I know. and Max. Yeah, for sure. Um, In any case, Rebecca and, and Max. They, and they met every, And the whole, and every, all, the family, the whole family. Yeah. Um, I'm sure that this is a nightmare. Max's mother, who was not even there. Her kid was at her dad's house for the weekend, and that happens. You get a phone call. Oh, my God. I can't can't imagine what a nightmare that must have been. I know. It's already hard to have your children out of your sight for any length of time. I imagine even at their other parents' house. Like, your six-year-old not with you is Mm -hmm. just always going to be kind of tentative. You're always going to be like, are they okay? What are they doing? Yeah. And then to have it confirmed that, like, yeah, maybe worrying was a good idea. Right. I, I can't, so. Cheers to Dina, who also did start a charity in Max's honor. Oh, cute. Yeah. Now, I'll, I'll put links to that charity. Yeah. Maybe we can put up a, a donation link and, and some more details. Um, but she did start a, a very nice charity. Okay. So. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Do we have any patrons this we week? We do. Okay. <laughs> Uh, sorry. <laughs> I know. It's so much. Um, to our best fiend forever, Mikey Vengeance. Aw, Mikey. Thanks, bud. Yeah. Cheers. Cheers. Ooh. I also cheers my microphone. Who knows what that's going to sound like. <laughs> and that's those are all our toasts for the week? That's it. Oh, man. Well, guys, I hope you um, got something out of that one. And I look forward to the conversations that it's going to start because mm-hmm. I really I strongly feel that it's something we should all be talking about if we were all interested in it. And if we were fighting through the darkest shadows of grief or despair, we We would would be be dead. Thank you for listening to the We Would Be Dead podcast. Hit subscribe now to never miss an episode. Rate and review our show on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at WouldBeDeadPod. And join our Facebook group to discuss the podcast and more.